Ah, oh, shit. Here we go again. Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds, <laughs> not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. And like it or not, wars are good, very good for business. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. So choose the red pill, remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, or as some call it, an austere or a non-permissive environment. Well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good and some not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region or the Middle East North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones. Myths legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. That's right, the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. Welcome everyone to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. This is episode 13, and we'll pick up where we left off in the previous episode uh, with the continuation of my experiences in the WPS training program. Um, people have asked and what we wore um, in terms of equipment and gear, you know, uh, we didn't always wear it every day, but we frequently did. Uh, it was a tactical-like vest, if you will. I seem to—I don't recall it having pockets for plates, but it had pretty much storage for everything else that you needed or would want on it. We were also issued 
as I recall, uh, knee guards or knee pads. I think we had elbow. I don't recall for sure. Um, actually, we did, but uh, long story short, and I'll get to that in another episode, but uh, I stopped wearing those, uh, I believe, the same day that we first started wearing them, um, and I'll get into that later. But uh, in terms of equipment gear, uh, that was pretty much it, uh, aside from the um, M4 or AR-15 platform that we were issued, but we only used it and only carried it on certain occasions. Uh, for the most part, when we were going through our instruction and training, uh, what we carried when we did usually was what we referred to as a red pistol or a blue pistol or a red rifle or a blue rifle. Um, <clears throat> and so we would use that a lot of times in a lot of our instruction and training. Uh, but, you know, then we would occasionally, uh, as we're going through another FTX or, um, you know, a culmination um, training exercise where we were putting everything together that we were learning from that particular module or that week or two weeks of, of instruction and training, uh, then we frequently would have our rifles with us. Um, sometimes we had ammo, other times we didn't. It just depended on what we were doing. In terms of clothing, um, everybody wore a tactical trouser. Not all of it was 5'11". There were various brands that people wore. Uh, and for the most part, as I recall, it was some shade or tone of desert uh, or khaki, uh, you know, desert sand camel type color, a beige type. Uh, and in terms of shirts, uh, long sleeve, short sleeve, it was whatever we had brought with us for the most part. There were attempts to get everybody wearing the same shirts. Uh, problem was, as I recollect, the company uh, didn't want to spend the money for that. Just as there was an attempt, at least one attempt made, to issue us all a very nice, very breathable um, jacket so that we all looked the same, we'd all have the same comfort level or at least have access to it if we wanted. Of course, again, the company didn't want to spend the money on that. So... In terms of what we wore, you know, the footwear was, it had to be something of a tactical nature. So the, it wasn't specifically you had to have this or that. So whether it was your military boots or your hiking boots or shoes, it had to be something like that. No tennis shoes and stuff like that. Um, so again, that, so, you know, whatever tactical footwear you had, tactical trouser, and then whatever short or long sleeve shirt we had uh, in our inventory that we brought with us. That's pretty much what we wore. Ball caps, if we wanted, a lot of guys did. Uh, gloves, um, and of course, it didn't matter if they were full fingered or, you know, uh, the finger, you know, the gloves that had uh, fingers cut off at at one of the knuckles on each of the uh, digits. And a lot of guys didn't wear gloves. Uh, some did, some didn't. I did. Not every day. It just depended on what we were doing. But uh, I got to a point fairly quickly where I had them with me at my disposal if I needed them sunglasses uh because it was still you know it's still very bright uh even in the fall slash winter time down there in that part of the world 
So a lot of the stuff was uh, what we refer to as big boy rules. So in a lot of, in a lot of times, whether here in the states or out of the states, usually almost exclusively outside the states, but you still see it sometimes here in the states. Again, it just depends on the project you're on, what the contract parameters are, and who comprises the boots on the ground. But primarily, um, at least I, here in the States, work by big boy rules. Okay. In other words, you should have enough information at your disposal to understand what you're getting into. And once you're in it, big boy rules prevail. So that doesn't mean that you can't make a mistake. We all make mistakes. But make that mistake twice and you should have known. So good chance you're going to get more than just a hand slap and you might even get sent home. Um, as I recollect, we were actual employees of the company, uh, even though we had contracts. Um, so I think technically we might've been W9 and I think later, and I'll get back, I'll get into that later in later episodes, uh, on this topic, but the, you know, the contract changed, uh, but to get back. So in our training evolution, uh, what we're doing, so things are starting to speed up. They're getting, you know, fairly hectic. We're getting pretty busy. We're having long days and sometimes long nights. And, you know, within a 24-hour period, we might only get three or four hours of sleep, maybe five if you're lucky, um, like me sometimes, because, you know, I might skip a meal. Um, not really that hungry. You've been, you know, on the go pretty much, you know, 16, 18, 20 hours, sometimes less. Sometimes we, we did have relatively short days that were right around the 12-hour mark. And for the most part, the instructors and the trainers try to keep it, you know, right around the 12-hour mark. But there is so much that we're going through, so much that is being presented to us. Um, you know, we really, you know, trying to cram it all in there in a 12-hour day didn't always work. And we heard that and we discussed it, you know, with some of the instructors and trainers. Um, and so there were some workarounds uh, where we went, you know, 14, 16, sometimes 18 hours, sometimes uh, and like I said, later in the evolution, we, we were doing a lot more 20 stuff, 20 hour stuff. Sometimes it felt more like 36 or 48 hours. Um, in that first, well, first one, the first week to second week. So we're in that first and second week. We made our first trip into town, so to speak. Uh, we drove to uh, the city of Albuquerque. And I, I want to say it was a Walmart. Uh, I think that's what it was. But we, uh, and then we did, you know, of course, a motorcade um, because any any time we went anywhere, we practiced what we were learning, and it just makes sense, uh, especially when you're quote unquote live. So we're out there, um, you know, mixing with people. So we we practice what we're learning. So anyway, we drive to Walmart. Uh, it was because there was a lot of stuff the guys needed. Uh, the bedding in the housing that we were in was, <laughs> it felt a lot like World War II stuff. Uh, so they were, you know, spring beds. It was metal beds, metal frames, um, and there was a very thin mattress. So I slept on it and became accustomed to it and actually, you know, ended up getting a pretty good sleep. Uh, and, you know, my body and my back adjusted to it. And it actually turned out to be pretty good for my posture. Uh, but a lot of guys, you know, they 
some guys anyway uh got mattresses um or you know two or three you know thin mattresses some guys got blankets or pillows you know we got coffee um stuff that you might need or want uh there in your housing uh so we did that and uh you know after you know be prior to that of course like i said earlier episodes we no matter what we did as i recollect every day started at the classroom so it was a facility a building that uh you know it had uh, i believe it was the whiteboards up there on the wall and we also had uh some sort of a video machine as i recollect that was uh hanging from the ceiling that could project uh things um you know so they also had uh i forget what the device is called probably have seen it in school where it's a projector i think is what it's called but you know we could lay still static stuff on it and it would project up on the wall so every day began in the classroom um not every day ended in the classroom some too many days did but not all of them again it just depended on what we were doing and where we were at uh and what was going on uh but that was obviously the preferred method um like i said in the uh, earlier episode uh the schedule that had been posted <laughs> uh really was was no longer in use uh so they had it up there and i think at some point they stopped posting it uh i don't know third or fourth week um because it just you know i think i may they overheard me murmuring it's like what's the point you know if if you're not going to follow the schedule why even post it i may have even said it to one of the instructors i don't recall uh with any certainty on that one but um so in that first in that second week now we're out in the various parking lots and you know we're using the neighborhood that we're in and as i recollect there there were it was a pretty big neighborhood and it looked like any suburban rural neighborhood with houses uh along meandering roads and some cul-de-sac type stuff and we would use that for part of our instruction and training as well um and then the outlying area you know we had a a very large uh range area and it was a decent drive to get there i don't know from our housing or the classroom to the range the the gun range was probably a five to ten minute drive uh along that road is where we did our initial uh run and uh, we had a gym where we went and did our combatives and a lot of other stuff that we did there as well there were several areas that we used for our off-road driving uh in in the vehicles that we drove i believe they were nissan pickup trucks i don't remember which model uh all had four-wheel drive and uh then we had a completely different facility in a completely different area in another state even for the on-road or the hardball portion of the driving that was a a full week uh module course uh that was on unto itself we did the off-road stuff when we came back from that uh so but to get back you know more or less to the second week so you know we're doing a lot of dry run dry fire stuff without weapons we're learning a lot of the basics 
for movements, uh, foot patrols, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's all outdoors and everything's taped or measured off, but there's really no walls because we're outside. Uh, same sort of thing, dry run we did with pretty much everything before we actually started putting on our gear and going out there with the blue or the red guns or with our rifles, but without magazines and ammunition. So that a large portion of that second week uh, was, um, as I recollect, was without any any equipment or gear. Uh, we were out there doing the dry run stuff, um, either there in a parking lot or driving somewhere uh, out in the scrub doing stuff like that. It really wasn't until about the second or third week, uh, as we got into the third week, that we really started um, being issued and, and taking or carrying our equipment with us. Uh, in that time frame, we were also doing land nav stuff. Started out there on the hardball um, around the classroom area. Everybody was given uh, maps and coordinates, and they were all different, and we had to follow them. Um, and it was timed, and um, so, you know, you had to move pretty quick. Um, and if you wanted a chance of completing all of them, uh, you, you pretty much had to run. As I recollect, there were five of them. We were given five coordinates, and we had to, with our land nav that we'd been taught, find our way around and get back within the allotted time. So wherever we started, you had to finish on time there. Whether you had completed only one or all five, um, and then later we were doing the same thing in the scrub, uh, quite a distance from where our classroom was, same thing, land nav, out there in the scrub, and it was timed event, and you had to be back at the start line by the designated time that we had to do it. So if you didn't um, get back within those time frame, as I recollect, uh, there was a penalty. I don't remember what it was for sure, but it was you know like maybe one or more of the uh, plots that you had been given didn't count. So let's say you completed four, but you didn't get back in time. Only three counted or maybe two counted. Um, so on that initial one uh, where we did it near the classroom, I want to say I got f all five. And in the scrub, I got four. I <laughs> And I remember as I was going back and forth between a couple places that were really close on that fourth one, I spent an inordinate amount of time making sure that I had it right when part of me knew that it was right, but I wanted to be absolutely certain. I don't know why I became so anal, but, the, but that ate up enough time that even though I was running, jogging, and sprinting, the, I, I knew where the next and the last one was, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to get to that and back to the start line in time. So I only completed four of them. But at least I got back in time. There were a number of guys that didn't get back in time. And of course, you know, they had the penalties. So if you're wondering or asking land nav, why do you need to learn land nav if you're doing stuff? Well, you know, uh, sometimes you don't have cell service or um, whatever equipment or gear is in the vehicle with you. You may not, it may not, be working for a variety of reasons. Um, 
Or if you get a position where you no longer have access to it, it's broken, you have to leave the vehicles, whatever, uh, it's good to have land nav skills so that you can get from where you need to go from where you are to wherever it is from point A to point B. Uh, land nav was, was, a, was, a, was a major uh, portion of that. We spent collectively on doing land nav stuff probably a week. Um, now, there was more of it than that, but it was incorporated with, with lots of other stuff. So it was just one of the things that you had to utilize while we were in that module going through the courses. Uh, with that said, I'll put a wrap on this episode. And uh, the next episode, we will pick up where I just left off. So with that said, folks, I want to thank you and everyone for taking time out of your day, afternoon, or evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas as well as sometimes some of my experiences as a private security contractor here in the States. Thank you to my wife for whom I owe immeasurable gratitude. Thank you to my family, my friends, and all the people, male and female, who have been and still are a part of my life. And remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by being aware and staying frosty. And of course, until next time, keep it real. Oconus the Contractor's Life extends a special thank you to music composer Kava Cohen and to Colin Perry of Ninja Tracks for allowing Oconus the Contractor's Life the use of Kava's song, Heavy Clutch, from the music soundtrack to the game Forza Motorsport 7. And also, a big thank you to Andres Rodriguez, who can be found at the Fiverr website for his excellent original music scores.